Okay, we're back again with Ian Fleming and Dustin McKee of The Reveal. Hey, hey. Yo. Dustin, do you shave your armpits? Dude, I just don't have any hair. It grows, it grows on the top of my head, and that's it, man. That's it's it? It's weird. Yeah, I don't have chest hair either. You're just completely... I think I'm a wizard. A dolphin. <laughs> a wizard dolphin, man. You are a reptile, that's for yeah. sure. <clears throat> So what have you guys been up to? You're just playing down on Broadway. You just got done with the gig, right? Yeah, we just played uh, Bowie's. That's currently Tuesday right now. We've got a Tuesday shift, and we're uh, saving up for an album. So we've just been doing Broadway pretty much nonstop, sort of taking a break from the original showcases and uh, just trying to rack up the funds as much as possible because we want to pay for everything ourselves. That way no investors can claim ownership over our music. Well, the one thing that I hear that's recurrent with Broadway musicians is they talk about when you play down there, you have to have some kind of exit strategy. Yes, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that, man. And that's what I tell because I have a lot of friends that are kind of getting caught in the quicksand down there. And I think people go down there just to make money. Um, and they don't really have a plan for what to do with the money. We actually barely keep any of it. So all the money pulls in. We count it all. We take what we really, really need to survive, and then we throw the rest in the band fund, and we use that to invest to where we can get future opportunities to where we don't get stuck on Broadway. Um, but it's you know it's already gotten to the point with us where we're getting so many opportunities on Broadway that when someone else hits us up and says, hey, can you play this show? Technically, it's a better show, but it's like, man, we're going to lose so much money that we would have potentially gotten. Um, so it, you can see how the quicksand would, would really take form because once you get used to all that income you know you start relying off of it and then new opportunities that come in that they might be better but they don't pay as much and all of a sudden it's like well how are we gonna pay our rent if we're not down at johnny cash's every sunday or something you know yeah well you guys did something too that's kind of rare i feel like in nashville you went from being an east nashville band to also starting to play on broadway not many people i feel like make that leap over from east nashville to broadway yeah, we were doing the original thing, and we got to the point where we realized that this next album that we do, we really want to pour a lot of investment into it. And it's easier if we're all on Broadway because then we all have the same work schedule, and that means it's it's going to be a lot easier to make band practices and get together more often. So, I don't know. We've... Um, we still want to do the original thing. I just think that at this point, we've really played pretty much every venue in town, aside from like things like Brooklyn Bowl. Um, we, we did Exit in a long time ago um, with our old drummer, but we're kind of at the point now where it's like, well, we've kind of done everything that we can to, to get ourselves into the local scene and, and build a following, so... From here on, it's either, you know, if we're going to move up, it's either like Exit In, Brooklyn Bowl, Basement East type of stuff, or we're basically just spinning our wheels playing the same shows over and over. So by doing the Broadway thing, our plan is to get the money up as much as possible and then use that to go ahead and put ourselves onto the next level uh, and get back into the East Nashville scene, you know. Yeah, well, it's not even like you guys are necessarily out of the, uh, the East Nashville scene. Right now, you're just focused on from what it sounds like, making money and then turning that money into recordings. Yes. That way you can gig with some of the the newer songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, go on more tours and 
Because, you know, we could book a tour right now, but we're going to be playing sort of the bottom of the barrel venues in every city. And it's completely possible to go on your first tour and play really big events. Um, but if you don't, if you're not constantly releasing music, and, and we really haven't had anything super new come out aside for some covers, um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's. Ian, it's, can you get a little bit closer yeah, up yeah. on that mic? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> How's this? Yeah, that's good. Cool. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, you're you're definitely right. Like about spinning wheels and and all that because it it can be frustrating like you know we play a lot of the same songs live and i feel like the local people who come and see us like they know desert man or or the homage but like we want to get that out on spotify get it on playlists get people listening to it in their cars so like you know they may not be able to come see us live but they know our music so that you know even if it's like hey we're going to go to memphis for a weekend or knoxville or something and like we have kind of the the airwaves out there people are more inclined to come because they actually enjoy the music, not just like, oh, it's this random band from Nashville that I don't know. So, like, it is, um, I don't know, we're, we're just kind of in, like, saving mode right now and definitely building our chops playing on Broadway. Like, that's for sure. That's the other benefit because mm-hmm. h- how many gigs are you playing down there a week now? About five. Probably five. Probably five. five. We're about to pick up a couple more, And too. they're four-hour shifts each. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, ju- like, just judging, like, because the first... Uh, you know, like Broadway style gig we did was at Bowie's in what March, late like late March of this year. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that feeling like such a like behemoth task to be behind a drum set for three and a half hours straight. And now it's just like, oh, we do that Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, and twice on Sunday now. So like being able to like build my endurance up as a drummer. And, uh, you know, just kind of keep the, 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 the energy. It's like, it's a workout, man. You got to get in shape to, to do it and, and, you know, build up your chops and whatnot. But well, yeah. especially with drums too, cause it's so physical. Yeah. I, there's, there's ways around it. Um, I mean, I'm not going hundred percent for four hours, but like sure. just stay and, and, and even stuff I picked up from Dustin where it's like, keep a loose grip because like my forearms will cramp up real bad or my, or my hands will hurt the next day. It's like, just keep a loose grip with it. And like, that's how you really keep the, the, the longevity of the show and be able to play well. So, so people enjoy it. Well, there's a physicality to, to playing music and by no means is it, like a, a manual labor job where you're breaking your back out in the sun every day, mm-hmm. but there are things you have to do to, uh, to be able to sustain doing it, whether it's for a four hour shift or for the rest of your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know for me, it's really hard. Uh, bass, the, the bass guitar is not a super physically, um, exhausting instrument, but it's, it's heavy. And after four hours of carrying on, on your shoulder, that's not too bad, but it's it's four hours, five times a week. Eventually, by the end of the week, I can start feel c- kind of like a burn in, in my shoulder a little bit, and I, c- I kind of hate it because I feel like it just sounds so weak. But you know, I'll, I'll do little little cheat codes. I'll put my my leg up somewhere and rest the base on my my knee or something like that, to where the strap's not pulling down on my shoulders for you know maybe a song or two, and then just get right back at it. We also do a thing where. Ian will take a break and I'll play drums and then uh, Josh will take a break and I'll play guitar and then I'll take a break and and they'll play without me. So that also helps kind of get our energy back up because I feel like usually once we do the little break section of the gig and we get back, it's really easy to get our energy back up because, you know, it starts to decline after a while. I feel like every shift has some point 
where you finally hit that peak where everyone in the band kind of looks at each other and like, man, I'm ready to go home. Uh, but sometimes when, when a bunch of people will come in, you know, that'll kind of lift your spirits up or something like that. And I don't know, sometimes tips just start just pouring in nonstop and that, that'll definitely lift the mood up a little bit. So it's really just about staying excited for four whole hours without, you know, looking dead the very last hour of the set. Because sometimes that's when you can get your the most tips is at the very end. Because that's when people are the drunkest. <laughs> I was about to say yeah. that, yeah. Well, and, and it it's totally like, it, as much as it's physical, it's like definitely a mental thing too. And, and you're right, even take, because I mean, I take the longest break of the three of us and it's like about 10 minutes or so. You guys do like two, three songs, but yeah. it's like just the mental break of sitting down for a second. Like I can just chill out or go outside or whatever. Like that does a ton. Like and and I, I'll be able to come back and actually feel refreshed and and feel like I can get through the rest of the set. Yeah, well, I I saw you guys. I've seen you guys play a ton just around town, but I saw you a couple of weeks ago play down on Broadway, and it's really a different approach because it's like all three of you are trading off songs as well. Yeah, with the vocals. With the vocals, yeah. yeah. And uh, Ian, you sound great fucking singing, by the way. Thanks, dude. Oh, for sure. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah, this is actually the first band I've ever sung lead, actually sung at all. Really? Yeah, it, I'm, I mean, it's something like, I, I've, I've never been a singer. I was never in choir or anything. I was like a band kid all throughout high school. Um, but it's, it's something like they, like, push me kind of out of my comfort zone. So I remember the first time you're like, Hey Ian, you think you can sing like this green day song? And I'm like, man, I'm yeah. not, I'm not a singer. And, and like, definitely kind of like put myself in that box, but it's like, all right, fuck it. Let's just give it a shot. And like, tell me if I suck. Like, cause, cause I'm always really critical of myself. Yeah. And I think it started with the originals. We had a couple group vocals that were just real simple. Like what's oh, your yeah. name? Yep. And, and no joke and and real little stuff like that and he did well and then there was there was a, a certain moment where we were like do you want to try hitting a harmony and then him and Josh started doing it and it was like me and Josh were talking like why is Ian so good at hitting these harmonies this is insane so we started getting more harmonies and more harmonies and finally the Broadway thing happened. It's like, dude, neither, none of us should be singing for four hours straight. And and that's another one of our strategies is actually to preserve my voice for the studio because in the original music, I sing lead pretty much every song. So we've got all this studio time now, and it's like the last thing that we want is to go down on Broadway. I blow my voice out and then get into the studio the next day, which is really our ticket off of Broadway, uh, and then I wouldn't be able to sing. So... Josh sings probably the most out of all of us. And yeah. then me and Ian probably sing like an equal amount. And a lot of times Ian will actually sing more than me. Um, that way when I hit the studio, I'm not a wreck. So it started with Ian just doing, I think, like four or five songs. And now he's probably got like 15 maybe. Yeah. Yeah, all the all the '90s, 2000s yeah. stuff. I normally take. Over. Yeah, Ian handles most of the '90s, 2000s rock. Um, Josh handles more of like the classic rock and a lot of the more southern kind of country. You know, more the Leonard Skinner and the Tom Petty and Josh. Josh obviously knows the the country scene really well because he's a radio DJ and country music. And then I do usually like the heavier stuff that requires more yelling and. Um, like the more the rap vocals where you're constantly just like pushing and pushing. 
Um, so it, it's kind of it's kind of tough for me because I, I feel like a lot of my songs are usually the not necessarily the hardest, but take the most out of you. Um, and even still, you know, Josh has been taking a lot of those off my back too. So how does Josh feel about that? Um, I think he's probably got mixed feelings about it. He, he says all the time, I want you guys to learn more songs. I want you to learn more songs. But I mean, just watching over the last few months, just seeing when we first started, all three of us have gotten exceptionally better at singing, but the amount of growth that Josh has had vocally, is especially apparent because he went from, you know, uh, playing with you because you play bass for Josh a lot and he's got his own his own side project solo band. Um, and then he, he would do background vocals and stuff for our original tunes, but he didn't really... He, he's a singer, but he's never really had a big outlet to do it. So as much as he complains about it, I feel like he's really getting a lot of, of what he kind of wanted in the first place because his chops are going up constantly He's getting better. He's learning runs. He's learning how to do like fancy vocal tricks and stuff like that. Um, we're all getting better at talking on the mic. I think at the end of the day, as much as it kind of sucks for all of us to be singing and using our voices over, especially on them Sundays when we're doing the double shifts, um, we're just getting so much better that it's like once we get, do the original shows or we have to actually use our voice for something serious, it's like, man, if we wouldn't have been overexerting ourselves on Broadway, would, would we really be as good as we are? right now because the, the, you just play these same covers over and over eventually you get bored you start adding little switches here and there and, and and trying to go up maybe a little higher or just throw some cooler melodies in or harmonies or, or stuff like that so every show it seems like we're getting better and our our chops are going up so it's worth it you know no for sure um ian how long have you been with the band for now uh i I'm trying to think the first time I met you guys, right around 4th of July of 2021. And uh, at, at that time, um, I'd been in Nashville for over a year, and I was looking for a bunch of... I, I was trying to find the right band, basically, that had music that I really liked and you know guys I got along with well, and but something to really kind of commit to. Because um, ultimately, like, like a lot of people, that's why I moved down here and wasn't quite sure what... Um, what direction I wanted to go. I just knew I wanted to play music for a living. Uh, and I was basically kind of stretched myself really thin playing in four different bands that I wasn't super crazy about. And, uh, were they original bands or cover bands? Some of, uh, half and half. Um, two of them were originals with some covers thrown in, um, kind of like, like a female fronted, like metal hard rock kind of thing. Uh, and then the other guy, he was kind of more country, um, and then the other two were just kind of standard, like classic rock and country cover bands, but none of them really kind of flourished into any gigs. I think I'd played maybe two gigs and uh, actually had met up with this this awesome songwriter who found me on Instagram and I got to play Whiskey Jam. That was the first time I ever played live in Nashville was, was at Whiskey Jam. Yeah, that's so I was cool. super fortunate for that. And this chick's a fucking badass and has been in the scene for so long. I was like, hey, I need a drummer. Like, can you do it? Um, but that, that never turned into anything long-term. So basically Dustin sent me a DM cause he, I was referred the to him. The famous Dustin DM. The famous, yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go no, you good, man. Uh, it's, but I, I was basically referred to Dustin through a guy who played bass in one of the bands I was in. 
And he sent, uh, I mean, I appreciate you just said like, hey, man, you want to join a band? Was like the exact yeah. message. And I didn't see it for like two or three weeks. And one day I opened Instagram and I saw like a message notification. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I was like, hey, is, is the gig still open? Like, I'd love to meet you guys or whatever. And um, he sent me all, all the songs. And I was driving to North Carolina. And it's like a five-hour drive to visit my mom. And I put on the Do You Know album. And I listened to it for like three hours straight. Just driving down I forty, I'm like, "Fuck, this is awesome!" You know, like, this is really cool music I can I can get behind. And ended up meeting up with them, I think the week after that, and shortly after, pretty much dropped all the other bands I was playing in and just focused on uh, fo- focused on the reveal. And, and it was awesome too because we had we had tried other drummers, and I think a lot of their approach was, "I'm going to show up and learn the song with." with the band and and we were kind of frustrated because josh and i we had been sitting through that five or six times and of course we've been playing those songs for a few years so it's like we know the songs we don't need to learn the songs so i told ian like hey man you know i totally get if you're busy but if you could show up a little more prepared than the average bear (laughs) that'd be sweet and we just said, pick any five songs that you want to do, and, and we'll just have a trial run. And he showed up, and we did the first song. He hit it note for note. He even learned all the fills and everything. And uh, we just said, all right, next song. All right, next song. All right, next song. We got through all five songs in one in one rep each. And we were like, you know, there's no real reason to go over this anymore. You go home. Good job. Come back next week with five more if you want. He comes back the next week with six more. Then he comes back the next week with four more, and I think within the first three band practices, uh, he had 15 songs down. So I think it was at that point we were like, okay, you, you've, you've learned enough. Let's get in and get into the details and start really refining it and getting the chemistry together. Um, and he was prepared for, I think, kind of what we did was the very first show we played all of our easiest songs and then the next one we was like okay you know let's still do the easy ones but add a couple difficult ones in and then i think by show three or four it was like let's now try to do all the hardest songs so we started putting on all the more difficult ones that took a lot more work and it got to the point where we were doing so well that it was like we played another one and it was like hey let's go back to the easy ones just to make sure that you got them and he learned them so quick that we were like, okay, you know, let's now start working on all the new album stuff and get that down to where we can start getting into the studio. And then by the time he had all of it, it was like, well, what do we do now? And then, you know, we needed money for the studio. So that kind of cycles all the way back around to the Broadway conversation was like, well, let's go ahead and just learn as many covers as possible and start doing that as well. Um, and, you know, here we are now a year later. Did you know Dustin was an excellent drummer when you went into practice with him the first time? Um, no, but it became apparent pretty shortly on into like practicing the songs because he would talk to me the way that like a drummer would talk so that I understood it. And so that's that's kind of where I, I picked up where it's like, okay, he knows what like he knows what he's talking about. I, I, I'm trying to remember when I really realize that it's like oh he's a really good drummer too was it uh when i played with liam at brooklyn bowl yes yeah 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 yeah, that was uh that's where i first watched and it was like okay he actually knows like he's a ridiculous drummer yeah he's he's (laughs) actually a really good drummer on top of being like a fucking uh, like honestly the 
I think your style when it comes to bass is like one of the most unique I've, I've really seen. But like after realizing you're a drummer first, that makes a lot more sense because you're like a very rhythmic bass you, player. You're a very percussive yeah. bass. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, That's all um, I got. But yeah, I, I like, I know it's, I, I forgot who said it, but it was at, because the second show we did was at the end, right? Yeah. yeah. And someone said, I fucking forgot who, but I just like, mine, I was like kind of introducing myself to people and they're like, yeah, Dustin, he's like a really, really good drummer. And I was like, oh, fuck. Well, you know, like, like kind of like how, uh, like Taylor Hawkins comes in the Foo Fighters and yeah. it's like, oh, Dave Grohl's already this like super good drummer. And you kind of have to like develop your own style and not be like, oh, you're Dave Grohl's drummer. You know, it's like you're the the part of the band and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, And that made it kind of harder for us to find a drummer, too, because I felt like I wanted, you know, I, I don't necessarily think I'm that great on drums, but I've spent so much time doing it that I feel like I could consider myself you know, whatever the word is, a professional or whatever. Well, that was your first instrument. Right, and I I was a drum teacher before I moved to Nashville. So my standard was I need someone who can speak my language and preferably someone who's way better than me at drums or at least like the same level to where I'm not sitting there babysitting and and teaching them, you know, how to do this stuff. I just want to be able to give them the vocabulary and then them say, okay, cool, like this and and it's not necessarily like dictative. I mean, there's a couple songs, you know, where all know exactly like, oh, this needs the ride symbol, this needs the crash symbol, this needs right hand on the hi hat, this needs toms. But for the most part, it's like I, I'll just give a genuine or, or a general idea and then kind of let the drummer paint their own picture. But that is tough. Being up until a couple months ago, I was a full time drummer for a living. Um, so because you were gigging on. Broadway as yeah. a drummer. Yeah, with, with several bands at a time. So I really wanted someone that was going to be able to, to kind of match that energy um, and, and, and also be cool with the fact that your singer and bass player is also a drummer and is going to have ideas and is going to know like little details about drums that m- most bandmates would never really pick up on. You know what I mean? Well, it sounds to me... Um just like why you were such a great fit in, let alone being a great drummer, you also had a work ethic. Because that, that was re- the real reason I would say that yeah. me, you, and Josh became friends in the beginning was because we had that shared kind of work ethic. Right, yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like you have the, the same mentality, and that's probably another reason why you were such a great fit for the band. Yeah, he, yeah. he was the most prepared drummer we had ever really worked with. He did. He just did... He, he not only did his homework, but he really overcompensated and, and kind of did a little bit more than what was asked. And that's how you know you got a keeper, you know. Well, and, and, and that was something, too. Like, I, I'm not going to say I, I, I don't necessarily come from, like, a family of musicians. But, uh, I mean, definitely what got me into playing drums was my, my uncle has been, like, a lifelong drummer. So, like, growing up and seeing him, and <clears throat> I remember kind of having, you know, some conversations with him about just drums in general and like when it, I told him I was moving to Nashville he, he said something it's like it's not about being the best drummer it's about being the most prepared yeah. like because you have someone who's there who can you know fucking do his crazy chops and, and being got, easy to work with but that's yeah and, and and like those are two things and like honestly I it might have been like Rob Zombie who who talked about it in, in that uh you ever see a documentary Hired Guns 
No, um, but I know what you're talking about. He, he's like, there's three keys to being successful in the music business. He's like, number one, you need to be good. You need to be able to play in front of large amounts of people and not get stage fright. And lastly, you need to be fun to hang out with because you're going to be spending so much time around these guys that if you're a dick, it doesn't matter how good you are, they're not going to want to work with you. Yeah. And it's like, I I think when people look at like, well, what is success in the music industry? And it's like, they, like that's, that's the thing that's kind of like I see at least what I noticed with like TikTok is it seems to be like, oh, we just want the viral hit. We just want like the instant thing out there when it's like, no, the long game really comes down to like being competent uh, and being prepared and easy to work with. Like that's how you establish longevity and like that way you build your network more and you just get a good reputation about yourself. And that's when the opportunity comes. So that was kind of the mindset I had coming into like, like moving here um, it just took a while to like meet the right people and in the right groups, but like without realizing it, because I was like, I felt like I was spinning my wheels like crazy when I first moved here. Your first year here? Oh my! Well, oh, plus yeah. I I moved here in March of 2020. Oh, so like shit. it was yeah. So me and um, now my my fiance, uh, we we moved together um, into an apartment in West Nashville. The day after we moved in, we were at dinner and they closed early because the city was shutting down. Yeah. So like I was down here like, okay, all right, I'm ready to like get into it, get like, you know, start meeting all these people and play. And then it's like, well, all the bars are closed. No one wants to meet because like we don't know what the hell this virus is. And I was just kind of like sitting at home for the first probably six months, like just feeling completely defeated. I was like, I made a mistake moving here. I should move back. They're like, everything's closed. I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, and finally, once everything kind of opened up, I just started taking any, I was just taking any Facebook ad of someone who needed a drummer. Like I would be driving out to like Hermitage to meet with like these 70 year old dudes to just jam and just like, I was just doing anything I could to play. And eventually that just led to playing in some bands that I knew weren't going to last forever, but it was something. It was getting your feet wet. Yes. Getting my feet wet. And that ultimately one of those bands is what led me to the reveal, which has, like I'm, I mean, I feel like this is what I want. The, the position I'm in now is the position I wanted to be in when I first moved here, and and now it's like that we're here. It's like all right, well, what's next? You know, how can we get to the next level? How can we like get more awareness around the band? Get better at like you know social media marketing or just more shit on Spotify? And and it's it's something that's really given me like a big sense of purpose, which is I think what every musician kind of longs for is is being a part of the band and like that is your identity. Um, yeah. That's just, that's just my take on it. But yeah, it, it was, it was a grind for a long time and I was getting burned out and it's kind of funny how that works. It's like, well, suddenly the, your hard work has kind of come to flourishing and, and you, you leveled up a little bit and now it's time to work. It just takes level. time. You know, yeah. I, I really think patience is one of the most important factors you can have with music and just realizing like, it is a craft and you have to be constantly chipping away at it. It's not something like think about the time of wh- like when you first played an instrument to now, I would say like the three of us, all of us as players and most of the people we know, they have personality in their playing. Yeah. It's, it's like having a conversation with them, except with music, you know, but when you first start playing, you're trying to steal things here and there from, from different things that you hear in, in music 
And then eventually you develop your own voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have your own mm-hmm. style. And you can tell someone's influences like, oh, yeah, that guy, he likes John Bonham. Or, oh, that guy, he likes uh, uh, Brian May or whatever. Yeah. You know, when you hear someone play, but there's also... Th- it's the sound of a soul. It really is. It's the yeah. sound of a soul in a, uh, a musical way that's, that's getting communicated, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I, I totally agree. I think a lot of it also, like, it's kind of a Nashville curse. You know, there's a lot of people here that are, that are playing in five to 10 bands or whatever, but it's really, you're laying down these brick by brick, just, just piece by piece. Row by row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're laying down all these real baby steps that that seem at the time like, oh, I'm just spinning my wheels, and and I did that. I I, I just counted, you know, last month I've played in 20 bands in Nashville since being here, and I never wanted to do that. I moved here specifically for this band with the intention of playing in this band. I didn't even bring my drum set to town. I moved here. Dustin, with my you bass. barely bring your fucking bass after. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um. And I just felt once I started renting myself out and playing with all these other bands, it was like, man, this isn't really what I want to do. But now after a few years of doing it, I look back, I don't know that my band, this particular band would even be doing very well if I would not have gone out and met all the people that I met through those other bands. And it's the same thing, you know, uh, we wouldn't have Ian if Ian wouldn't have been playing with Tyler Marbury because Tyler's the one who hit me up and was like, hey, you should play with Ian. And it's like, I don't know how much Ian felt like he was spinning his wheels, but him over there spinning his wheels with with all these other bands was really the reason that we found him in the first place. And I know a lot of the producers that we're working with right now and all the studio stuff that we're doing, I would say like at least 50% of those, if not more, are we picked those up from playing in other bands and, and helping out other musicians. And, you know, it's all about shaking hands and kissing babies. Well, I think when you're your- a good musician that can actually play, it's other good musicians recognize that. You know right. what I mean? Like other players. Like there's a difference between someone who plays an instrument and is a player. Yeah. You yeah. know, a player has their their voice and they, they, um, they carry themselves in a, a certain way. There's right. a certain level of professionalism. Well, yeah. and, and, and it's one of those things like even if you go to like an open jam or something and you get set up with someone else who knows what they're doing, there's like an immediate mutual respect because you guys both understand the journey you've got, you're, like, you, you're on to get to this point and all like the years of sucking at it before finally finding your voice and finding your style and like there's automatically like an instant connection and like a mutual respect between that and like that's one of the coolest things of like just being down here, there's so many people who went through those formative years of finding their voice, and like now they're all collaborating together. Well, that's how Dustin and I met. We yeah. met at a fucking open jam. Yeah, Where um, at? yeah, Tuesday night blues jam. It was the country at the time. Now it's the local, but it was Kara Lippman's jam, Kara yeah. being blue, and that uh, that jam had the reputation for being like the best jam in town because the hottest players went there. Yeah, and then yeah, that's where I actually met. Uh, Liam and Rocco and and th- that they, was the same night it was the first yeah. the first night um 
the, the four of us uh, played together. Well, yeah, we met at Kara's, and then that was a Tuesday, and then they wanted to meet Wednesday at Pop Attorney's. Yeah, and that was Pop Attorney's. That was the audition because they wanted me to be their bass player, and I was like, dude, I don't have time to learn all the chords and the scales and everything, but I, I, I would be down. You guys are really good. I would love to, like, you know, drum with you guys, and they were kind of closed off to it at first. I showed them a couple Instagram videos of me playing drums, and they were like, well, can you audition and, and jam with us tomorrow. And yeah, I showed up and you were the guy on bass and we, we kind of vibed over Wolf Mother for a little bit. Yeah. And, and uh, we ended up both doing really well. I think that they wanted both of us in. I'm not really sure. Uh, but you, I, I feel like you weren't really, too. yeah, you weren't really feeling it wasn't your style. But that was actually, that was the breaking point of me only being focused on my band. That was the first time that I decided I'm going to step out and, and help some other people and play in some other bands and see what kind of connections that I can get off of, you know, playing with other people and, and opening up my foundation a little bit. And since then, you know, basically a, a bunch... Nashville is all songwriters and guitar players, and then there's a couple bass players. It's it's a lot of guitar players that just picked up a bass to get a gig. Yep. Uh, and then every drummer's in like five or six bands are just not available. So everyone needs a drummer all the time. So as soon as I started playing drums for Daylight Sinners, a bunch of other people found me. Next thing I know, I'm playing for all kinds of people. And I, I honestly think that that's what really made me who I am today. And it's it's how this whole Broadway thing that we're doing right now, I think that the reason that we're doing as well as we are was because of my experience over the last year doing it full time as a drummer with all these other bands and watching all the front men and watching all the techniques on the mic of how to collect more tips and how to get more people in the door and how to keep the energy high and what the bar owners are looking for. I don't know if we could have just went in cold as the reveal and just did that without me playing in five or six of those bands and seeing what it really takes to, to, to be great. Um, and then taking everything that I learned and passing that on to this band. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if you're listening, you're you're a Nashville musician playing in ten different bands, and you feel like you're not doing anything. You really are because every single band that you're playing with, you're meeting all these new people and you're gaining all these experiences. That once maybe you do finally find the thing that you really want to do, all the information and education that you've built up over time, it all comes into play and 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 makes you stronger as an individual musician. Well, it's not wasted time, you know. I I think for myself, I set some goals when I first got here, cause I didn't know any fucking musicians. I didn't know anyone really. The way that I started befriending people was going out to Kara's jam, going out to pop the pop attorney jam on Wednesday nights. And, um, just trying to, I, I set a goal for myself like, okay, for 13 weeks in a row, I'm not going to miss going out. And sometimes I'll go out two times a week. Um, just going out to those jams after working all day, you know, a, a nine to five job. And eventually that led to meeting you guys. And I befriend, befriended the weird sisters through going to a, a show. But really the way it happened was, do you remember Ron Bates? He kind of, who, who does he play something? He's a guitar player and he's an, he's an engineer, but that, um, that session I did at Blackbird, that Kirk, did the percussion yeah, on yeah. was through Ron because Ron was going to the Blackbird school. So, um, but yeah, long story short, kind of everything stemmed from Kara's jam and just, there were all these different 
offshoots, which eventually led to me playing with Teo. And then me and James were playing together a lot. So me and James, we started off playing with Teo. It was just uh, the three of us playing. And eventually that evolved into getting other gigs with me and James. Cause I've been in probably five or six different bands with James. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, when you're in the weeds and you're going out to those jams, I didn't feel ever feel comfortable once. I always felt nervous before I went on stage because it was all super hot players. Some some of the older guys are really nice, and then some other people are dicks. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh yeah. Um, but I loved Kara because she was just real. You know, like she was real. Like she would ask someone, like, "Are you a player? Like, can you play?" Um, and she would intimidate a lot of people and, uh, she would like pull people off stage if they sucked and shit like that. And even times where I fucking bombed, dude, cause there was times where I really bombed. She never gave me shit. You know, she never yeah. once gave me shit cause she knew I was trying, but it goes through all those trials and tribulations of eating shit, getting better, eating shit. Cause like you move here and you can be the best at wherever you're from. And then once you get here, yeah. you ain't shit. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And that's always, it's always funny when someone's really overly confident in Nashville, you you can just immediately assume like, oh, so you, you just got here, huh? Like I, and I've seen it before and people, oh, yeah. people will say something or they'll say something to me or I'll hear them talking to somebody else and, and, and their little egos will come out or whatever. And I'll just laugh and be like, so you, you just moved here, huh? Because we can all totally tell because you haven't really seen everybody thinks they're going to come and take over. And it's like, I feel like there's just so many people that have thought that and then immediately are very quickly humbled. Um, or they leave, dude. That's the other thing that's yeah. happened. Yeah. Think of the amount of people that we've known Yeah. since we've been here. Because how long have you been here for? Six years? Five years? Uh, five and a half. I've been here for seven years now. Ian, you've been here for... A little, about two and a half now. Two and a half. Yeah. So it's, you start to see casualties of Nashville and to, to kind of what you were saying, Dustin, people come in here on a blaze of glory and they could come swinging out of the gate and they might be great players and shit might start working out for them right away. But then they, they hit that first six month mark. You know what I mean? Where the trials and tribulations start happening and you have to decide whether or not you're going to keep pushing forward or are you just going to go home and cry or decide that this is not for you? And there's nothing wrong for that um, or nothing wrong with that. But you you have to decide, like, is this a lifestyle you want to live? Yeah. It's, it's an ocean of people all screaming to get noticed. And it's like there's a strategy of, like, what do you have to do to shine in, in the middle of a city where it's all the best players in the whole country? And I, I, yeah, it's real tough for people. And I don't know, most of the people that I've played with have all stuck around, but it's a lot of times it's not even because they're not good. A, a lot of people just think, well, you know, I'm not making money here because it's so oversaturated. Really the only way to, to make a solid, consistent income in Nashville with music is doing stuff like the Broadway or, or tribute, some sort of tribute band or something like that. Like playing in a cover band. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think Nashville is not the place where you make your money. Nashville is the place where you learn how to make the most money possible. And then you take that and you export the new talents and the, and the new skills that you've learned elsewhere. And you go make money elsewhere in other markets. 
uh, at least that's how I kind of see it, unless you want to be a Broadway band, you know, for the rest of your life, which there are a lot of people that do that. My, my dad was that. My dad would often encourage me, like, you know, why are you doing all this original music? There's no money. Why don't you just learn four hours of country music and tour the world and make thousands of dollars? And it's like, uh, well, because I don't want to kill my soul, Dad, <laughs> you know. Ian, where are you from originally? Uh, so I grew up in a city called Rochester, and it's uh, about 30 minutes north of Detroit. Um, Is this in New York? Uh, sorry, in uh, Michigan. Michigan, okay. Yep. So I yeah grew up in like the suburbs of Detroit, not anything like 8 Mile or anything like that, but uh, yeah, just kind of a, a quiet town. Uh, Detroit's got like a massive like metropolitan area. Good so, music scene, too. A lot of great players. Definitely a lot of great players. Um, I mean, obviously it's known for like Motown, but the city has gone through so many different, like like at one point, so we had a mayor uh, named Kwame Kilpatrick, who I, I don't know if you've ever heard that name. He basically bankrupted the city. And he was involved, like, I don't know all the details, but he is like, everyone in Michigan knows the name Kwame Kilpatrick. And I think he was in prison um, for some sort of corruption bullshit. Um, and Trump pardoned him the day, his last day in office. And I don't know if it's just like, cause Michigan voted for Biden or what, but like, there's no reason that guy should have ever gotten out of prison. Um, he was involved in some sort of like murder investigation at one point while he was in office, but basically bankrupt the city. And so Detroit suffered like really heavily from that. Um, I know there was like the race riots shortly after the the, the Motown boom and, and kind of in, in the late 60s, and it had a really hard time recovering. Um, but yeah, trying to think about how to, how to circle this whole thing around, but that's just kind of like a short history of like how I always viewed Detroit as a city. So the music scene, I think it's starting to boom a little bit more now. Like obviously Greta Van Fleet's from Michigan. They're, they're actually from my fiance's hometown. She went to high school with them. Um, so she knew all, all those guys in high school and there's another band coming out. Uh, they're called Max Saturn and they're actually from, uh, Ferndale and Berkeley, which I think is where Liam's from. Yeah. yeah right? Liam's from Berkeley. Um, but there's, there's, I, I think some, some noise being made there that's kind of catching the attention of like some, some national, uh, like, like management and actually getting like a, a wider audience for some cool music coming out of there. But well, Wolfpack is from Michigan too. Oh yeah, they're from Ann Arbor. Yeah, yeah. they, they white all white stripes. Well, white stripes. Actually, yeah. my my aunt, um, she told me a story because she was like she kind of was coming of age in the '90s. She graduated high school in like the early '90s and stuff, and she went to a house party and saw the White Stripes Whoa. there when they were just like a, a local band kind of starting off and playing Kid, a house show. Yeah. Playing a house show. And, uh, that's badass. Yeah. And like Kid Rock's from Detroit too. And they don't like him up there as much as they do down here. Like he, uh, he, he had a restaurant in the Red Wings arena. And I think after the Oprah Winfrey like rant that he had on stage, uh, they shut his restaurant down. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that was directly related, but the timing was really weird. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there, there's definitely known like a lot of musical history in, in, in Detroit, but it, it, to me, it was never a spot that's like, I'm going to make a career out of music here. Um, so I, I, you know, grew up in, in, in Rochester and it was a good place to grow up and everything. But once I kind of decided like, Hey, I 
sort of want to take this a little more serious, that's when Nashville actually kind of got on my radar and um, came down here on a bachelor party, like the classic Nashville story. But literally the first night I was here, I told my best friend who was in the bachelor party with me, I'm like, I fucking hate my job. I'm going to move here. And what were you doing before you moved here? Uh, so I, I, I worked a couple different corporate jobs. Um, I was a recruiter at a staffing agency. So it was like a high, kind of like high, not quite high pressure like sales, but it was a very salesy environment. Everything was commission-based. Everyone knew what everyone else was making, and that created this weird hierarchy in the office, and people were getting like, jealous of other people making more money and stuff like that. And I just knew it wasn't, it's like, I don't want to do this. This is not office bullshit. Yeah. Office politics, man. And there was drama and it just was like bleed, like really heavily bleeding into my personal life. And to a point where, um, I mean, it, it, it never was like fatally affecting my relationship, but I was working 10 hours a day and you were miserable. I, I was miserable. So obviously I was bringing that energy back home and I was, I was living with my girlfriend at the time and you know, now fiance who I, I moved down here with, but she, she said at one point, like you were a different person when you worked there cause you were so stressed out. Um, and so I knew I needed kind of an exit strategy. And once I came down to Nashville and that thought was always in the back of my head, like I want to, take music seriously I just don't know how to do it and I don't even know how to tell people like because because I think when someone's like oh I want to be a musician or I want to be an actor I want to do something like an artistic uh career I think people dismiss it a lot because everyone's kind of in the nine to five mindset you're not going to make any money the only real way to make money is from doing a nine to five office job or working whatever else um so yeah once I came down here I I I I basically just knew I needed to shed this stressful job that I had and get into something that I actually enjoyed doing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I basically worked a bunch of corporate roles that I knew were never going to be a long-term thing. And I, I just always wanted to figure out how do I make money doing music? Yeah. So. Yeah. I've worked a lot of office jobs like that myself. I'd always done sales stuff and it's just, I was never good at playing the political game to to kind of further my career, so to speak, because I knew yeah. I wanted to do music. So I never gave it really gave a shit. I mean, I did my work, but I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be the, a manager here one day or any shit like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like if you don't have that attitude, they, they, they smell if you're not all in. Yeah, and, and I mean, depending on the workplace you're in, like, a lot of places will shame you for that, you know, or, like, because that, that, was, that was sort of the place I, it was, like, the only career route for me was to go from being a recruiter to an account manager, which was a sales position. Yeah. And I knew I didn't want to do that, so as a result, I started to resent it, and, you know, that affected my performance, and then their kind of mindset was like, well, he's not doing well, it's because it's he's lazy, you know, and it's oh, like, yeah. it's like, no, it's, it's not that at all. And, and I think the sad reality is a lot of people feel that way in their jobs, that it's something that's really soul crushing and they would rather be doing something else. They just don't know how to do it. Or they don't know what it even is that they're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously not to knock any sort of like, like corporate jobs. Cause I, I actually, one of my, 
my really good friends, he, he works the corporate job and he absolutely loves it. He got into like this training position and that's just totally his, his personality. And, you know, every time I talk with him on the phone, he's killing it at work cause he loves it. And that's great. And I hope everyone can find that thing that makes them tick. But I, I feel like the masses of people are not satisfied with the work they do. They just view it as like, it's something I have to do. And I like live for the weekends, which is sort of a, to me, it's that's just that's a sad way to live. Like it's like, a miserable existence. Yeah, it's 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 a miserable life. And if you're able to find enjoyment in that, or find the right company or the right position, then like more power to you, man. I think that's great. Um, it just wasn't something that I ever saw myself going all in on. Well, being in a, a bad job is like being in a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like you were saying, you know, like your fiance noticed that it changed you. There was this one particular job that I, I had that really, I didn't even realize it had, it had changed me in that way. Um, and I was just miserable. And they were also asking me to do a lot of stuff I felt was unethical. Mm-hmm. You know, it was nothing, some stuff was straight up illegal that the, this company did. But um, I felt like sometimes they would just ask me to do these things that were against my morals as a human being. Mm-hmm. And, um, if you don't, it's, it's almost like they're initiating you. And if you don't play ball, then they start going after you yeah. and trying to get you out of the door. Yeah. And it's I like mean, a pledge. It, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're pledging the fraternity. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'm just glad that I identified that feeling I was having kind of early on to, where it's like, this is not how I want to live the rest of my life. Um, cause that's how you become like a fucking jaded old person who's like mad all the fucking time. But like, mm-hmm. or, or, or what else is crazy is people will say, uh, you know, oh, oh, I'm a totally different person outside of work. And it's like, well, how, you know, you spend at least 40 hours a week doing something you absolutely hate. How are you not bringing that energy into other parts of your life? And how is that not affecting your personal relationships? Or, you know, if you have kids, like your kids are going to see that. And now that's like setting this weird tone in your household and, you know, kind of stuff like that. Like I, I, I noticed that a little bit with my father growing up, like he always did well financially, but he always seemed pissed off when he was coming coming home from work and, his job. yeah yeah he, he he wasn't happy um and so that 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 was just something after I graduated from college because I actually got a degree in finance um so I I had wanted to like I thought I was going to go and like um, when I was a freshman in college I wanted to work on Wall Street being like an investment banker or something like that and the more I got into it I was like you know, I like some parts of this. Like, I, I think it's important to understand how like the financial institutions work and stuff like that. It's very valuable, but I'm going to be miserable if I do this. And like, even if I make a bunch of money, I'm still going to hate myself, you know? And that's, that's not how I want, you know, my marriage to go. That's not how I want to have the relationships with my future kids. Um, so we're, when you were growing up, you were playing music then? Yeah, so I playing the drums. Yep, so I started. um, I'm trying to think what year it would have been. Uh, So I was originally put into guitar lessons because actually my older brother, um, he's about two years older than me. He's been playing guitar longer than I've been playing drums. Um, So him and I, like, I remember one Christmas he got a guitar, and then they put both of us into guitar lessons. Um, I'd never really 
I can play a little bit, but it was never like my thing. Like he took to it. So I'm like, well, fuck it, man. I want to play bass, you know, but my parents were like, well, bass is the same thing as guitar. So we're just going to keep you in guitar lessons. And then I'm like, all right, well, I want to play the drums, you know, like, cause, cause my uncle played and one Christmas they got my brother an electric guitar and they got me a drum set. And so we started jamming together and that's was right around the time American Idiot came out. So it was like 2004. Oh yeah. And that was, how, how old were you? Fourth grade. So like 11 or 12, uh, you know, yeah, like 10, 10 or 11 or 12. Um, but that's what started the thing because that was when like MTV still played music videos yep. and, and, and all that. So I saw like Green Day, they did the live uh, performance at Milton Keynes Bowl in England. Bullet in the Bible. Bullet in the Bible, yeah, dude. The, and, dude, all that shit was the, <laughs> the way that I became a bass player. Yeah, it's, it, it was something. And like I remember, so there were two albums specifically. And it was American Idiot was the first one and then blink 182 self-titled album. So it's like Feeling This and I Miss You. And they were constantly playing that. So I was able to see like, well, Trey Cool's badass and Travis Barker's badass. So like, I want to be like those guys, you know? And, and I remember getting this drum set and thinking like, I'm going to be just like Travis Barker, you know? <laughs> like, I, cause like the, the, uh, there was a sweepstakes to win his drum set. He played in the always music video, like the, the, the fucking one with all the different, different cuts and stuff. Uh -huh. Um, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to be just like Travis Barker. And my brother, he's like, he's like, well, you're not going to get that drum set, but don't tell mom, but she, uh, she's getting you a drum set for Christmas. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, so, so it's like, it was like, oh, it's happening, you know? And I was like, well, don't tell mom, but you're getting an electric guitar for Christmas, you know? So we knew like what, like gifts we were getting and shit. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up jamming with my, uh, older brother and he, we learned pretty much all of Green Day's discography. Like, we bought all the albums from fucking, what is it, 1039, Smoothed Out, Slappy Hours, all the way up to American Idiot, and, like, listened to all of them, learned as many songs as we could, and, like, at family parties and stuff, uh, they would come over, and we would just play Green Day for them in our bedroom. And I remember at one point, they're like, do you know any other bands than Green Day? And I'm like, no, we don't. Like, we only <laughs> learn Green Day. Um, so that, that was what kind of started it for me. And yeah, just growing up, they put us in lessons. And so I would do like the, the re like annual recitals and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was always a part of my life from the time I got a drum set. And, um, I mean, really what made me want to take it seriously, uh, is, is when I started doing those, like those YouTube covers, um, cause you have a YouTube channel. I do. Plug What's it. your YouTube channel? Uh, I believe it's, it, it's just Ian Fleming, uh, is, is just the YouTube name. But if you look up like Ian Fleming drums, you'll find all the videos and stuff. I got about 80 or so covers on there. Uh, but what made me want to take that seriously was other YouTube drummers like Luke Holland. Do you, do you know who that is? Mm. You know, Luke Holland. but, uh, and this other guy named Matt McGuire. And Matt McGuire, it, to this day, is my favorite drummer. Like, he's my number one guy, but not a lot of people know him. So in, anytime someone's like, who's your favorite drummer, I just say Travis Barker, because, like, everyone, you know, kind of knows him. But, um, yeah, he was making these really high-quality YouTube covers, and then he got picked up by the Chainsmokers. So he's the Chainsmokers. The Chainsmokers are from Maine, where I'm from. Are they really? Yeah. I, I thought they were from New York. Uh, I know one of them, at least, is from... Um 
Freeport, Maine, which is okay. one town below where I'm from. No shit. Yeah. Do you know which one? Is it uh, Alex or Drew? I don't know. They they honestly they both they both might be from Maine. Okay. But I I just heard you know from people that like growing up they're like oh yeah the chain smokers were just I, I, it was long after I already left Maine because they didn't blow up until the past couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've always kind of heard about the, the chain smokers since I've left and that they were from Freeport, which is just funny as fuck, dude, because Freeport is like this, uh, this town that's entirely a fucking tourist town. Really? Yeah. So, uh, Freeport's claim to fame, it's where L.L. Bean is. Like the, it, it's like hunting, fishing, outdoorsy oh, okay. kind of clothes. Yeah. Similar to like a Cabela's or something like that or yeah. Bass Pro Shop, but it's. It's more, it's different. It's, it's not for rednecks. It's for like, uh, fancy people, basically. Like a real outdoorsman type of yeah. type, type guy who has money. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, um, so like Freeport is there and then there's all these outlet shops around it for like Nike, Abercrombie and Fitch, all that shit. Mm-hmm. And that's all that's really there in that one town. Just like a big ass outlet mall. Yeah. Pretty much. Really? It's, it's like this whole town. It's like this main street in Freeport. It's all these outlets. And in the wintertime, of course, in Maine, it completely fucking dies. There's there's nothing going on. But in the summer, a lot of people from Boston and New York come up and vacation in Maine. So they come up to all these fucking outlet, uh, outlet stores and just go there and go shopping. And there was a period of time where I worked at this place called Shaw's, which is... It's just like a Kroger or a fucking uh, Publix or something like mm-hmm. that. And um, so, yeah, th- there was a lot of French-Canadian tourists that would come, too, from Quebec. Okay. But, yeah, I just went off on a tangent. No, but, you're, you, you're um, good, man. Actually, Maine is a state I've always wanted to go to. Really? I th- it, it looks beautiful from all the pictures I've, I've seen. And, like, Stephen King's from Maine. Are you a big Stephen King fan? I love Stephen King. I mean, not, not so much more his his more recent work, but like, I love like it, the stand, the shining Salem's lot. Like Salem's lot is my favorite fucking Stephen King story. Really? Well, actually Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, for horror, definitely Salem's lot. Um, I, I, and I love the fucking, uh, the 2004 version with Rob Lowe. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. I'll have to check it out. It's on Amazon prime. Watch it, dude. It is so fucking good. I'm actually, I'm reading the book right now. Uh, cause I love that fucking movie so much that I wanted to, I wanted to read the book for it, but yes. Yeah, St- so Stephen King, basically my town is Brunswick mm-hmm. right below that is Freeport. And then bordering both those towns is Durham where Stephen King spent his childhood. Okay. Yeah. I know he talks a lot about, uh, I know he spent a lot of time in banger. I think that's, that's where- yeah, that's where he lives now. Okay. Um, but like when he was a little kid, he lived in Durham. Um, but yeah, so have you ever seen a picture of his house? I know he grew up poor. Yeah. Like he grew up there and his dad left like classic, like going to get a pack of cigarettes and just never came back. Jeez. Yeah. But his, his house, like his house today, it's exactly what you'd imagine a Stephen King house to look like. It's like like gothic. It looks like a castle and shit. Yeah. 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 It's, it just, um, it's that classic kind of new England style. (laughs) Like everything in New England is old as fuck. Everything in Maine is old as fuck. There's there's not really a lot of new stuff, and Maine is also a very um, desolate place. 
there's only a million people in the entire state, and it's geographically huge. Yeah. It's a big place. Um, like, my hometown is famous for a couple different things. One, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Okay. Uh, she, she lived in Brunswick. Uh, Civil War hero Joshua Chamberlain lived in Brunswick. He also went to Bowdoin College, and I believe he taught there, was the dean or some shit. And then um, fucking, I can't remember if it's Zil- Zildjian or Sibian. One of the, the symbol dudes, he lived in Brunswick. Yeah, I thought, I, well, I know all Zildjian symbols, they're like known for being like Turkish symbols, and I don't know if they're based in... I, and they're not even it's or... not that they're based there it's just like the dude whoever the dude okay. was that found it i can't remember which one it was but he lived in fucking brunswick as well okay that's cool yeah i i, I don't know a ton about like drum gear history but it's i mean Z- whether it's zildjian or sabian like that's a massive like accomplishment like those are the two biggest names and symbols so that's oh, yeah. that's really cool um but yeah, man, like Maine has always been on my radar and like, cause I, I always picture like the summer, like the lighthouses and just having like amazing seafood. Straight up. There. That's what it honestly is. Like, like what you see is kind of what you get. I think the reason that I'm drawn to Salem's lot so much is it because it captures the dark essence of a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of all this shit because it, it, it is so beautiful and it is a tight, air quote, tight knit community, Mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of downsides and a lot of seedy shit that goes on because of that. Yeah. And well, that seems to be the, the like backbone of like a lot of like American horror classics. And, and like, I noticed a lot with Stephen King is everything goes back to childhood. Like every, like it is probably my favorite book by him. And it's like, fucking a thousand pages or something crazy. And there's a gangbang in it. <laughs> Dude, they never, well, I don't know how you'd capture that in a movie, but yeah. like, I remember read, cause I read that book. Gangbang with children. Yeah. Well, cause I, I read that book. I think I was in eighth grade. And when it got to that part, my head exploded. Like just the way it like, cause it's a graphic fucking sex scene with sixth graders. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck am I reading right now? You know? And, and kids like, in your general age range at that time. Yeah. It was like, you just couldn't like sex was like the Holy grail. And you're like, these kids are all, oh, they're all banging the same girl. Like it's, it's nuts. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, it was always something to do with like something happened in their childhood that's haunting them as an adult, or it's a story of like just adolescents dealing with some sort of like evil in the community. Yeah. And so, yeah, like Stephen King is, I, I think he's the best at kind of like telling that style of story. And like, he just has consist like consistent, God damn it. Consistently delivered, uh, on pretty much every book he's, he's written. So it's like, he's had a crazy career. Have you seen the movie, the black phone? Oh, uh, with Ethan Hawke? Yeah. No, I, I, I haven't. I, I was actually with someone there talking about it yesterday. I said it was really good. It's fucking great, dude. That's um, based on a short story by Joe Hill, which is Stephen King's son. Oh, shit. You should watch it. Yeah. You, if you're a Stephen King fan, you'll love this movie. I really loved it. Ethan Hawke was incredible in it. Yeah, he's... I, I know he's always been, like... He's always been an A-lister to me. But, like, I feel like in, in terms of his ability, he's been, like, wide, wildly underrated with a lot of his, like, performances and just, like, the shit that he's been in. Yeah, he's a great actor. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we went on a nice little little tangent there. Yeah, but we did. Hey, that's the, that's the spirit books. of the podcast. That's that's the pod though. Um, but yeah, I guess kind of the the original uh, thing we were we were talking about was um, like what really made me want to consider drumming as like I should take this seriously was starting those YouTube videos and I guess kind of as a, a backstory to it. Uh, so my my father actually passed away when I was twenty two. Uh, he, you know, had a long battle with cancer and, and, you know, died in 2017, I believe the year was. Uh, but I was kind of using these videos as like a creative outlet to kind of deal with those emotions, kind of like focus on, on something else. So I started them when I was in college and no one at that point really knew me as like a musician. So I put the first one out and like, I was in a fraternity at the time and all the guys were like, you play the drums, you know, and like a bunch, like people from my high school were like sharing the video and stuff. So it was just like really encouraging. So I kept doing it and just periodically, like the studio owner, the guy of uh, where I was filming the videos and recording them, he's like, you know, you should really consider doing this. Like, say, like you ever pick up studio work or you ever, you know, pick up, pick up gigs in Detroit. So I started doing that a little bit and like actually got a little bit of attention from the artists that I was doing their songs and like I, I, I remember um, most of them were, were EDM based because that's like a lot of the music I was listening to at the time. But there's a dubstep artist who uh, his name's Sullivan King. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he's this sh- monster shredder. He like mixes metal with dubstep. And um, the day I graduated college, I just tweeted at him a cover that I did of his song and he like fucking retweeted it. And I f- remember feeling more accomplished that I got him to retweet my song and get his attention than I did about graduating college. So I was just more psyched about like getting like, Oh shit, you know, this, this person is acknowledging me and and giving me praise and stuff. So it's like that, that's kind of what planted that seed of like, Oh, maybe you can take this a little more seriously. You're not just some like dumbass on the internet making shitty, shitty covers. So at this point you weren't really, gigging is it this what led to the gigging this is more what led to the gigging yeah so like i focused most of my energy on kind of trying to build this youtube page but it was you know kind of inspired by my favorite drummers who a lot of them were just youtube cover guys who ended up making amazing careers and getting picked up by big bands and stuff so i'm like well let me let me give this a shot you know because i enjoy this a lot more i want to put my energy into it um so just kind of through different people encouraging me i was picking up some like random gigs and like I played a Kwanzaa festival at one time. Oh shit. I, I was literally the only white guy in the building. What, what kind of music were you playing? It was like R and B kind of like soul stuff. Um, but it was through this guy who I worked with who was like really into the R and B scene in Detroit. And he had this big ass band. There's, there's literally 10 people on stage, like they had backup singers, they had a percussionist. I was a drummer, like you big, like all dreadheads and stuff like that. And it was like, i this is like they were super cool they made me feel included and all that but it was like i feel very out of place like (laughs) and like i don't belong here um but it was it was it was a lot of fun so i was just doing random shit like that and then uh like just going to some open jams and stuff in in detroit where it's like mostly old guys and um yeah i I don't know just kind of getting just people kind of praising you and giving you a little bit more confidence. And then when I came down to Nashville on, uh, on that bachelor party, I was like, 
this is where I'm going to do it. This is where I can do the thing. How long did it take you from that point to when you moved to Nashville? From the party? Yeah. Uh, so the party was in, I think it was in June of 2019. And... That's when I, I mean, that first night, I, I think I was at Rippy's or something like now looking back and like identifying the first bar I walked into, I'm pretty sure it was Rippy's. And that's where I told my friend, I'm like, I fucking hate my job. I want to move here and do this. And he's like, all right, dude. I thought I was just like just drunk and talking. I like texted my fiance. I'm like, we're moving to Nashville. And, <laughs> and it, and just like, I, I was hammered, you know? And it's like, as you do when you come down How here. did she respond? She was like, okay, like just, just <laughs> like, drunk. yeah, she's like, I have fun tonight, you know, whatever. But it's like that feeling just kept growing over the weekend. And, uh, like I, I, I remember at one point, like just meeting, like there was another fucking like group of people that my group kind of meshed with. And I was talking to this dude. So he goes, so what do you do for work? And I told him, and this was like on Sunday night. So the night before we're going back home and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a recruiter, you know, for this company, but I'm, I'm going to move down here and become a professional drummer. Like I was, I was fucking like set on it and came back and still had that feeling. Um, and ultimately I sat down with my girlfriend and I was like, Hey, like, I'm serious. Like, I want to make this happen. And, like, I was fully prepared to, like, break up at that point because I didn't know if she was going to be on board. But I was like, this is really something I want to do. And I would love it if you came with me. But I understand if you don't want to, you know, give up being around your family and, and, and your friends. You were going all in, bro. All in. And and I was, like, prepared. Like, I don't know how this is going to go. And she was like, let's do it. And was a huge factor with the timeline because she's like all right well my lease is up you know in march so either i'm signing another year lease or we're gonna move in march and it was at, at this point probably like august and so it's like oh shit all right let's do it in march let's let's now plan. You have to put your money where your mouth yeah is. yeah it's like put up or shut up because like and it's scary as fuck moving to a new town not knowing anybody yep and, and i mean i was super lucky to have to have abby because i i don't know how i would have been able to mentally survive uh, being down here in a pandemic in a city where I don't know anyone, you know, and, and once we moved down here and all that happened, uh, we didn't break up. We really didn't fight that much, like more than, you know, any like casual tension that you experience in a normal relationship. But at that point I'm like, all right, well, she's probably the one, you know, like, <laughs> like, so I, if you can survive COVID together. Yeah. If, if, if we can live in a, you know, a small I, the apartment wasn't super small, but I, I mean, I was able to transfer my job that I had at the time. Um, and so I had work, we were both working and we were living together in super close quarters. And it's like, you know, this is something we're able to make this work. So it's like, she's, She's probably the one, you know, who's some helping to support some shit that I want to do. Um, yeah, Abby's a huge support. Oh my god! Yeah, she she's awesome. Yeah, she's 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 really cool. And so yeah, that's that's kind of how I got here. And once shit started opening up, I just was like, well, I can't have her move down here and have not and like and not give it an honest effort. You know, I owe her that, and like I owe myself that too. So that's when I just started taking anything I could fucking get, which kind of led us to where we're at now. On this couch. On this couch, talking to you. With these microphones. Yeah. 
It's inspiring to hear, dude. You got a real inspiring uh, story and a path to Nashville. I'm basically Tony Robbins. Um, <laughs> no, hey man, Tony Robbins. He has some good advice. No, I, oh, he's I know. I'm basically Andrew Tate. So. <laughs> oh, God, no. Canceled. Canceled. Kicked off Instagram, but um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's it's just something. I'm very happy to kind of see the progress that's being made and kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's, uh, you feel like you're spinning the wheels in that moment, but you don't realize you're actually laying the groundwork for the progress that's going to be made. It's like, just give it time. And if you're doing all the right things, there's no way you can't make progress, you know? So that's, that's kind of my, um, take on it. The, the long story that that was. Justin, whatever happened to Mr. Higgins? Is he still MIA? Man. Oh, man. Mr. Higgins. Mr. Higgins was in Scotty's van uh, when we were staying in Madison. And that was the last I ever saw him. And what was weird was Mr. Higgins got taken out of Scotty's van, but Scott had like four or five other guitars also in the van that didn't get stolen. So, Dustin, I think you just lost it. You don't know where it is, and it's going to pop up. Like three years from now, someone's gonna be that. like, "You left this in my car." I would love <laughs> that. Oh my gosh, I, I do. Mr. Higgins was. I had Mr. Higgins for eight years, and what was real crazy was when I first got that bass. It really didn't sound how it did after eight years. There's something about the way that the wood would warp to all the gigs that we played, and, and you just it, get those oils in it you know it, what i mean uh, yeah man it, it was weird because it was almost like alive to the point where it adapted to my playing style and it picked up the fr- it started picking up frequencies that i don't remember it doing when i first got it and it was almost as if th- the bass was listening to the music that i was playing and like figuring out like oh it needs to be it needs to be a little bit more punchy it needs to the slap needs to poke through because when I first got it, it was very, very just like high and trebly and like kind of cheap sound and real clanky. And uh, by the end of it, it just figured out. I, I say it like it, it's like a person or something, but it had changed over eight years to just, I think it just got used to the way that I was playing it and the way that I was touching it and everything. And you know, I just randomly came up missing, but I got Thunder Dragon now, so... Thunder Dragon, then I got a I got a Delta bass and a Tobias that Ed Harnage from Harnage Guitars hooked me up with while he was working on Thunder Dragon. So I got three working basses right now. Uh, you know, I mainly stick to the Thunder Dragon, but the other two I'm still I, w- I want to work on customizing those like I did with Thunder Dragon and Mr. Higgins as well. R.I.P. Mr. Higgins. Well, he Thunder Dragon, knew. it left your hands for a little while. Dude, it took over a year. It took over a year to get Thunder Dragon to be finished. And then by the time I got it back, I, I had it back for a couple weeks. And then, yeah, that was when I, I played a gig with Multi Ultra on drums. got back to my car. My window was punched open. There was actually, it, it's crazy. There was a homeless guy in my car, dude. And, and he was rifling through my stuff. And I, I screamed, you know, probably top five loudest I've ever screamed and said some very threatening, murderous things to the guy. And I said, you got, I, I looked close. I didn't my, I had my glasses on and I was like, where do you get that shirt? I have that shirt. That's one of my favorite <laughs> shirts. And then, and then I'm just like, oh, well, you know, it's an East Nashville shirt. I'm sure he just has the same one. I looked down at his pants and they're burgundy ripped jeans. And it's like, I only know one person with burgundy ripped jeans. And that's, that's me. <laughs> 
And and I look and I go, are you are you wearing my fucking clothes, dude? And and he looked at me like mad that that I'm upset about him wearing my clothes. He's like I didn't have clothes. I was like, so you broke into my car naked? What the like? What <laughs> what you what what were you wearing before you found my shit, dude? And he he was like, look, man, like. I'm not the one who stole your stuff. I found your stuff on the side of the road, and I, and I just traced it over here. And that's when I realized your car has already been broken into. And I was like, bitch, you better start talking, or you're going to end up in the dirt, bro. And he took me over, and he, he found all the stuff. And and I was just like, okay, well, you, you know, you're obviously not the guy. Uh, I, I believed him to a certain extent. And I, I, we called the cops, me, Nolan, and Chris from Multi-Ultra, and we sat there for 30, 40 minutes. Cops didn't show up. And I told him, you know what, fellas? I'm homeless. I know where these crackheads stay. Because obviously, you know, it, the, downtown has a problem um, with people getting their cars broken into. And a lot of it is just the crackheads down there that need money. And I, I knew that that's what happened. So I went down and started talking to all the homeless people, saying I was looking for it. And they all... The closer that I got to where it was at, they were playing more and more dumb and kind of looking at me with this weird look of like, I feel like you know where my shit's at, bro. So I go down under the bridge right across from Johnny Cash's next to Big Machine, and I walk under there because, you know, that's where they all hang out and they do their little, their, their thing. And I, I start explaining myself peacefully, and I look down, and sure enough, Thunder Dragon's just chilling. And, and I look around and I say, well, hey, my laptop's missing too. So I put Thunder Dragon on my back and I say, I, I'm looking around at 10 withering crackheads laying on the ground with blankets over them. And it, it looks completely harmless. And I say, I, I'm not saying any of you stole this. And even if you did, I don't care. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to call the cops. I don't really love the police. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if y'all could go find the dude who stole my laptop because I want to get it back. I wasn't even thinking, man. So... So now, instead of a, a bunch of crack heads, out pops the crack lord himself. Dude's like six foot five, wearing really nice clothes at four in the morning under the bridge downtown where the, where the Red Hot Chili Peppers all warned us not to go. And he comes out and he gets in my face. Very large man. Looks like he could have been a uh, quarterback for like a, at least a college football team, if not maybe even in the NFL. Gets in my face and says, hey, give me my guitar. And and once again, I'm not thinking, and I'm just like, well, you know, technically it's a bass, and my dad got me this bass, and I, was, I, I wasn't I was speaking his language, you know. And dude just decks me in the jaw. It's the first and only time I've ever been punched in the face. And he was like, I'm not playing. And, and I will say, looking back, the way that he punched me in the face, he kept his footing. You know, when you're going to punch somebody, you kind of got to center your gravity a little bit, and he, he didn't. It was a very, hey, man, I don't want to beat your ass. He, he sucker punched me, but it was a very, it, it had the vibe of like, this is a warning shot. I'm just letting you know that I'm bigger than you and I could kill you, but I just want that guitar so I can go get some more crack. So I kind of felt that and I just looked at him and, and Chris was with me. No one was back at the car making sure that more shit didn't get stolen. And... uh Chris is like, dude, you need to chill. <laughs> like, that's gonna help. Like, hey, man, you chill out. It's like that's he's a crack lord. That's not how they. That's not how they operate. Uh, he's he's on business hours right now. <laughs> but uh, we we run away, and him and three or four of his buddies chased after me, got me to the ground, and 
You know, they really didn't hurt me, man. There was a weird presence that I I really felt like they did not want to be violent. They wanted my guitar because they wanted to sell it and pay the rent. And I could, I could feel it. I could feel that they kind of needed the guitar to survive a little bit more than I did. So I thought to myself, they need it more than I do. It's a one-of-a-kind custom bass. It's not going to go far. It's very recognizable. Um, so, you know, I just kind of walked away. He said, give me $500 and I'll give it back to you. And I said, I don't have that. And I honestly might've had it on me cause I had just played a really good gig and I was gigging all the time and I just didn't want to pull my wallet out in front of him and all his buddies. Cause you know, who knows? They could have stole that too. So I ended up leaving. We call the cops again. The cops yell at me for freaking out. And I was like, dude, I just got jumped and robbed and you're, you're mad at me. What the fuck? Why did they, why were they mad at you? I I was, I mean, to be honest, I was, the the adrenaline, the fight or flight had kicked in and I was like, yo man, like we called you guys 40 minutes to an hour ago. We're literally like not even 10 blocks down from the police station. We're right here because they told me 911 couldn't help. So I got to call the police station directly. So I was like, okay, that's fine. The police station's right there. Surely all they got to do is just drive down the road. They'll be here in five minutes. So This dude ends up telling me, you know, there's bigger fish to fry. There's all kinds of stuff going on right now in downtown. We don't have enough officers. It's not really that big of a deal. Chris goes and finds a cop and says what happened. And the cop says, well, I'm stationed to stand right here for the next hour. So I'm not helping you. Um, And so I was pretty upset. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I literally just got, I just got jumped. And if you guys don't show up, I mean, there's a chance these guys can come out and kill me, you know. And... He was just like, look, man, there's people being murdered. There's people being raped. There's there's all kinds of crazy domestic abuse going on. We just don't have the resources to help you. So we end up going down and finding a security guard who, who was supposed to be watching over where I parked. And he was very upset. So he helped us do some research. And somebody lied to us and said, oh, I saw that guy with that, with that guitar. He went towards the Shell Station. So we walked to the Shell Station. And sure enough, there's two cops just sitting there. And they tell us we're the only two cops in the entire city of Nashville right now. And it was about 4.30 a.m., but the only thing I was thinking was, well, hell, if I ever want to break the law, I'll do it at 4.30 because there's no cops. Uh, But they basically filed the report. Nothing happened. They called me two weeks later. Still nothing happened. I, in the middle of playing uh, with, with the band, doing the original stuff, and then the drummer that we used to have leaving... I hadn't gotten any gigs after that. So uh, for about a month and a half, I went and worked at this place called The Garden Family. And they are very, very well connected to the streets for some reason. They, it, I, I swear, he, he's got an army of all the homeless people in Nashville. So I called I called Sam and said, hey, man, like this Sam happens. Welch? Sam Welch, yes. Shout out to Sam. Love you, bro. Uh, he, he said, what did he look like? And I told him what the dude looked like. He said, I know that guy. And I just figured he was talking on his ass. So I, I go over that week and he goes, watch this. And he pulls his phone out and he calls this random number and this dude answers. And he goes, hey, man, uh, I had a buddy who got a guitar stolen. And I just figured maybe you or one of your boys might have come across it. And uh, all I hear over the phone on speaker was, was it blue? And we all, <laughs> we, all, we all just look at each other and he goes, that's the one. And, and the dude goes, yeah, I saw it. And he was like, all right, man, well, you know, we, we want to buy that back. And I guess the dude was just like, okay, well, whatever. And we were assuming he had already pawned it off to get rid of it. 
So we kind of gave up for a little bit, and finally Sam realized that, you know, I wasn't going to get it back. So Sam went straight guerrilla warfare mode and, you know, went everywhere that this dude chilled. Like, he, he actually knew him. He knew his gang affiliation. He knew everybody that he associated with, where he hangs out, where he chills, where his family's at, like, all kinds of stuff. Knew his name, knew his street name, knew all this. And I guess took a few, uh, he, he, he went a little heavily armed there and went into this dude's neighborhood and was just like, yo, I'm trying to get this guitar back. And he did it for, I think, eight hours straight, like two days worth of hunting. And finally the dude, I think, panicked and called him and was just like, hey man, what do I got to do? And Sam was just like, I need you to get that bass. I'm going to buy it back from you. And I was actually out on a run. I forget where I was at, but I, I was out of town and Sam sends me a fucking picture of the bass. And he was like, I got it. It was him playing it. He took a picture of him playing it. And I just laughed. And But it, it, that was probably a month or two after. Um, and, yeah, man. I mean, the, the story has many more details. But while it was happening, I was like, I need a movie deal. We need to call fucking George Lucas or something. Steven Spielberg. I don't care. Quentin Tarantino, man. Like, get the best on this. This is crazy. It was a very long ordeal with crazy homeless people, and there were so many characters that we met along the way. Um, and, and the best part was our manager, we had a show at the Basement East, and our manager was like, you need to be on the news. We need to hit this with the news. So Steve sent out an email, and Channel 2 came and interviewed me at the Basement East, and I ended up being on TV that night. So... As hilarious as it is, and the interview was, you know, it was about the base getting stolen, but what they did was they came to the basement east, and they said, this is Brother Dusty of the rock band The Reveal in Nashville playing tonight. they the wrong name at first? Uh, yeah, I think, I forget what they called it. Uh, it was like The Revel or something yeah. like that, but... They they interviewed they interviewed and in and they found a way to make the substance also about our band playing at Basement East and they got like videos of us warming up and stuff like that so it ended up being like kind of great that it all happened especially now that I've got it all back and I got it back and it was literally still in tune I think one string was like slightly flat when I got it back but I think anyone who saw it would have taken one look at it and been like dude what the fuck am I gonna do with this other than repaint it or throw it in the trash can. Because it's just like it, it was one of a kind, so it's just like you're kind of screwed if you're very recognizable, with that. Yeah. especially as a crackhead. You know what I mean? Like, what are you really gonna do with? And, and at this point, after playing for five years in Nashville, playing in twenty different bands, it's like I can't even walk down Broadway without being stopped. I mean, literally earlier we played Bowie's, and I walked down to Big Machine to see if I could talk to our booking lady. And on the way there, I got stopped three times by random people. So it's like, I, I feel like I'm known enough that it's like, you're not going to get far with that unless you sell it to somebody who's like a few states away or something. So, yeah, I got it back. And I played it today for the first time, actually, because I think when we were painting it, we overlooked some plastic that was in the tuning gears. And after we painted it, the tuning gears were kind of stuck. And they ended up getting stripped the very first time I changed the string. So I gave it back to Ed and Ed had to order all new parts and the stock parts weren't right. And he had to get a custom order and get everything reattached. And then, and then once he figured out it worked, he had to repaint it and everything. So I just got it back for the first time today. And it was honestly weird playing on it because I've been playing all those spare bases for so long, but yeah, we're, we're back together, me and Thunder Dragon. So that's exciting. I can finally start working. I don't like messing with all my pedals. Because I don't want to get all the pedal tones corrected 
uh, on a base that I'm not actually going to be playing full time. So now that we have that, I think the next step is sitting down with some band practices and working on the tones of how to get my fuzz and my delays. And uh, I think I've got like an octave pedal and stuff like that. So I'm building the pedal board and I, I really haven't been able to be too proactive about it until now. So I'm excited about that. Where can people find you at, Dustin? Uh, we're The Reveal Music on Instagram. We have a YouTube. You type in The Reveal Band. There's so many babies coming out every day that when you type in The Reveal on YouTube, we're just not the first thing that comes up. But if you type in The Reveal Band, you can find all our stuff. We're on Facebook. I think we uh, we might have just got a... We have a Twitter, but we don't use it. Uh, we just hired a social media manager who got us a LinkedIn as well. But Instagram's kind of our main thing right now. And we have a website. Uh, I think it's therevealmusic.com. Okay, and how about your uh, your own personal page? How can people find that? Brother Dusty. Everywhere is Brother Dusty. I'm sick of people adding me on Facebook, so don't do that. Unless, unless there's a guitar in your profile picture or you're hot, I'm probably just not going to accept your friend request. So just be honest. dudes? Man, you know, if I I don't know, we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) How about you, Ian? How can people find you? Um, so I am on Facebook and Instagram. Um, never really fucked with Twitter or like TikTok or anything, but I mainly do Instagram and it's a Ian Fleming 95. Um, you can find all my drum stuff and then I, I post some reveal content on there I'll share a lot of stories and stuff but it's mostly like my main personal like drum page so I got clips of all my YouTube covers and stuff on there uh and then Facebook uh not super active on it but just Ian Fleming cool and while you mentioned TikTok we also have a TikTok uh the reveal music as well it's pretty much the reveal music everywhere awesome dudes thanks so much for coming on thanks for having Dude, us thanks man. for having us man it was a lot of fun see you next week Thank you.